Welcome to the Multiply podcast. The following audio was taken from one of our main sessions at the Multiply Summit, held in Nottingham in June 2022. When we start out in our journey of leadership, the focus is so much about our journey, isn't it? <laughs> it's all about our leadership journey, what God's doing in us. And do you know what that continues in our leadership journey. Of course, there is what God is doing in us. But I think as you mature in your leadership journey, you become increasingly satisfied and excited about watching the journey in others. That it shifts. There's this moment where you're like, oh, it's not all about me. It's actually about what God's beginning to do in the room with others. And so when you see that moment when somebody preaches for the first time, with that trepidation and you've pushed them out of the nest and they're like, what am I doing? And they preach the first time and you sit there and you're like, you're better than me already. You, you know, that moment where you're like, you're flipping awesome. Well, that first moment when somebody starts leading worship and you just know that the anointing of the Lord is on them to lead worship. And th there's this change. And personally, nothing gives me more satisfaction than watching people be great at what God's called them to, that moment where you're like, they're great, they're great, they're great, beginning to see the gold. And as a movement, our future is only as secure as the next generation coming up behind us. We've spoken a tiny bit about legacy. What I think of this when I think about legacy, because it can feel a bit selfish. It's a bit like, what's my legacy? You know, and it's like, it's not all about me. It's about ultimately what is the fruit that we're leaving behind? And the next generation of people willing to stand up and lead. And a group of people willing to take seriously the call to courageous obedience. And that's been one of our themes throughout the interviews that Mike led, throughout all that we've been talking about, is just that courage to go after the things of the Lord. And it, may, it makes me think of the moment when the Lord speaks to Moses about who's going to succeed him to lead people into the promised land. And so the Lord's been speaking to Moses about his death. It's a big moment, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's like, Moses, let me talk to you about you're about to die. And his time's come. And he's to go up to the mountain in the Abram range and look at the land that the Lord is going to give the Israelites. So the Lord takes him up. And I can't decide whether it, on the one hand it's quite cruel because it's like, Moses, you are never going to get to go into the land. I just wanted to show you what you're not going to go into. I... Purpose, I actually don't think it was that. I think, actually think it was the Lord's kindness. That the Lord's like, I'm going to take you up the mountain to see the promised land that you're not going to go into, but the people are going to go into. It is going to happen, Moses. You are going to get there. And so he's like, you're going to go up the mountain and look into the promised land. This is going to be the legacy. This is the generation. So Moses turns to the Lord and he's like, but who's going to succeed me? Who's actually going to do that? And so Moses starts speaking with the Lord about his successor. What's this going to look like, Lord? How's, how's this going to go? Who's going to take on leading this community? Who's going to be the one? And so we pick it up in chapter 18, Numbers, um, sorry, verse 18 of chapter 27 in Numbers. And it says this. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, sorry, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eliezer the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. And do you know what? I've been in the book of Numbers 
going to be honest, not somewhere I've particularly spent loads of time. But in the last couple of months, the Lord's just had me. And interestingly, the Lord has had Mike in it for four years. So Mike's been in it for four years. I've been in it for two months. But there's just something in this book. And that phrase, the spirit of leadership, I haven't been able to kind of get off me. Do you know what I mean? You know when you read something, you're like, oh, the spirit of leadership. And so what I wanted to talk about today is the spirit of leadership and what we see in that. And I suppose another way of putting it is you could call it spiritual leadership, couldn't you? The spirit of leadership or spiritual leadership. And the Lord says to Moses that Joshua has the spirit of leadership on him, that he can spiritually lead others to lead others in the ways of the Lord. And you know what? It's the one thing that you can't outsource in church leadership. I've tried. I've tried to outsource everything, but I've realized the one thing that you can't outsource is the spiritual leadership. It's like you can't give that away. It's that moment. And interestingly, that uh, in this passage that Moses gives some of his authority to Joshua is the, the, what it talks about. But ultimately, that, that having to take the responsibility of that moment, do you know what I mean, of the spiritual direction of the church and those things, it's like that's the spiritual leadership. We hear so much about practical leadership. And do you know what? I, love, I personally love team building. I love reading all of that stuff. I'm actually a big fan. I'm a bit of a geek about it, actually. I'm like, I love it. But there's the piece that's so easily overlooked and missed about the journey of courageous obedience to the Lord's voice. That's what we have as the spiritual leadership. That's what we're after. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. To lead God's people in the good times and in the not-so-good times. In the tough times. And for those who are senior pastors here, our role is to be identifying those who have the spirit of leadership on them. That's what we're to do, to be picking out the gold as we go around our communities, to be calling out. I sat down with somebody a couple of weeks ago. The Lord spoke to me. They joined our church, and I was like, that person is awesome. You, you know, that first meeting, you look at them. And so I've waited because they've needed at least nine months of just healing. And so I sat down with them the other day, and I was like, I've got a big question for you. Do you think you're called to ministry? He's like, what? He's like, yes, I do. I was like, I know it. You know it. I'm on your case. That was all the chat. That was the chat. I, I, didn't, want to, I didn't ask him to do anything. I just said, I want to know. I want you to know that I know what you're called to. And I want you to go away and think about that. <laughs> Come back to me. We'll meet up in two months, and then we can talk about what that looks like. But in, in, in some senses, that's what I mean about that ability to call things out in people and to be like, I see this in you. That's, our, that's like our Jedi gift that we have to go around and just begin to call those things out. That's the authority. And that's what happens when we begin to look beyond our own leadership journey. Because, And again, I'm not saying that's not important. We need to take care of that. But it's the lifting up of our eyes and being like, what is the gold in these different places? Walking around this room, seeing what the Lord's doing. That's the shift that begins to occur, that we get to raise and release, raise and release, raise and release, always be looking. And then we get to celebrate when people are awesome. Also when they fail and they get it gloriously wrong. But to begin to just journey that with them. Of the people that left Egypt, only two entered the promised land. Only two actually made it, Caleb and Joshua. And if you remember the story, Moses sends out the spies, you know, the 12, one from each tribe, 10 come out, and they're like, terrible idea, I've seen giants. Literally terrified. Caleb and Joshua come back and they're like, we can do it, we're going to take this place. The people are absolutely terrified. It gets into the, you know, into the spirit of the people and they can't do it. They 
But there's something in Caleb and Joshua where they see beyond the circumstances, that they see the land flowing with milk and honey, that they see beyond. And so it's that that I want to talk about today. I love what it says about Caleb. It says this in Numbers 14, 24, talking about this spirit. So Joshua's got the spirit of leadership. What is it about Caleb? Numbers 14, 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit the land. I want to both encourage you and prepare you for what lies ahead. Because the truth is spiritual leadership is not an easy journey. It's not an easy journey. You know, anybody that's leading a church right now, they'll tell you it's not an easy journey. For those of you know, who know me a little bit, I would describe myself as a Peter Pan type character. Ultimately, I never want to grow up. You know, that's kind of, that's in my heart. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I just want to be Peter Pan. I don't really, I just want to be free. I don't want responsibility. And leadership feels so deeply grown up sometimes. Do you know how grown up I feel standing in front of you lot? No, but do you know what I mean? I feel deeply grown up. And, but I realized pretty early on in my walk with the Lord that I just could not change things if I did not take responsibility. Now that's my leadership journey. I have to keep pushing into that because I'm like, oh, that feels a bit grown up. And then I'm like, but then what the Lord does is he keeps putting things in my heart that have to be done. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I can't not do this. And so he takes you into that next step of, and that's something that I will personally deal, deal with. For others, it's very different. But in spiritual leadership, there are, there are tests and hurdles that we continually have to keep overcoming. And I felt the Lord speak to me, particularly about three that occur in the life of our leadership and that you will, they will be on a cycle in your life that it's not like you do it once and you're like, da-da-da, solved this one. It will come back and it will come back and it will come back. And so I just wanted to talk about those three things that I've experienced. And I want to do that through the life of Gideon. Because during the pandemic, for me, Gideon was the place that I was in. If you talk to my staff, they'll be like, yeah, we were a bit bored of Gideon, actually, by the end. But do you know what I mean? It's like those moments where you just have to sit in a story because the Lord is saying, you haven't learned it yet, James. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like there, there are stories. And for each of you, there will be passage, watering holes, passages of Scripture that you just keep going back to. And for me, it was the story of Gideon. And so I just wanted to unpack a few things that I have learned in this story. I'd say learnt as if I have learnt it. I am learning would be a much better way of putting it. The three tests are these. The three tests that I believe that we'll see. The test of our identity, the test of our provision, and the test of our worship. Those three things I think we, that we face continually. It's no coincidence that these three things Satan tests Jesus on in the wilderness. So if you want to look at Matthew 4, Luke 4, you will see Jesus is tested on these three things as well. But I wanted to pull these things out of the story of Gideon as well to talk about them. So the first one is this, the test of our identity. God's identity versus human insecurity. There is a beautiful interaction between Gideon and an angel that we pick it up in Judges 6, verse 11. So if you've got a Bible, just want to grab it, go to it. If not, it'll come up on the screen. But it says this. I'll give you, do you know what? Actually, I'm going to give you 15 seconds to get there. Five. Four. <laughs> it's like a pace test. 
So it says this, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abrazite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. Two, two things I just want to draw out of this. The first one that really interested me was that the angel was sat down, chilling out. Got nothing more to say about it than that. Um, just, I often think about an angel hovering. The angel sat down. Interesting. Secondly, hopefully more profoundly, Gideon is hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat where nobody can see him. Now, backgrounds, I'm sure you know this, but Midianites are continually attacking, carrying off livestock, crops, everything. Do you know what I mean? They just keep coming in, ravaging. So Gideon's in a wine press because he's hiding, and he's trying to thresh the wheat out of sight of everybody. And so Gideon is in that place. The people are cowed. They're scared. They're like, oh, so annoyed. And so Gideon's hidden away. And so we pick it up in 12, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. In this moment, the Lord, the angel, sorry, was putting an identity onto Gideon. He's placing that on Gideon. The Lord is with you firstly, and secondly, that you're going to be a mighty warrior. Now, I am willing to bet everything that I've got that when we reach the pearly white gates and we ask Gideon the question, that he did not feel like a mighty warrior down in that wine press. He just didn't, did he? He was hiding, afraid. Do you know what? I think he was actually pretty hacked off. <laughs> I think he was annoyed. I think he was angry with the Lord. Happily minding his own business, when the angel comes and speaks identity, not only identity, but identity and purpose over Gideon. Gideon wasn't looked for this. He wasn't looking for it. I reckon he had his own plans to stay well hidden. But I love his response, verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord. Like, isn't that just the best line ever? Pardon me, my Lord. <laughs> like, it's so formal. Um, I'm not going to unpack it in the Greek. Obviously, I could, but I'll leave that till later. Um, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, this is, this is why we know he's hacked off and he's moaning. Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? Basically, God did all of these incredible things. I'm here. The Midianites are robbing us. This is so, I'm, I'm so angry about this. Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. God, I've got some pretty major questions going on. Where have you been? What are you doing? I can't see the plan. You've abandoned us. Basically, it's the place that Gideon is in. So he's had this affirmation of identity and purpose, and he's peed off. Verse 14, the Lord turns to him and says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon, I am sending you to sort this out. Huh? <laughs> That is not the answer that Gideon was hoping for. I was hoping for someone awesome and qualified and competent, someone who is actually this, a mighty warrior. That's what Gideon was hoping for. Brilliant, verse 15, pardon me, my Lord. So polite, Gideon. Obvious question, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. I know you wouldn't have ever said things like this, but I'm a bit rubbish on every level is the James translation of that phrase. I'm just a bit incompetent. I'm a bit rubbish. God, if only you knew me, this is a terrible plan, and I've worked out what the fatal flaw is. It's me in the plan. We've all done it, haven't we? God's put identity and purpose on us, and we've said, I've seen one huge, huge flaw in your plan. It's me. It's a brilliant plan with somebody else. Verse 12. 
the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, which is where we started. Now, during the pandemic, personally, the Lord gave me this verse to stand on. This was the verse that I got up every day. I did not feel like a mighty warrior. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea to lead. In fact, I want to do anything else right now than lead because I can't see people. I really like people. I don't like them on Zoom. And, um, you know, just that moment where you're like, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. And the Lord was like, I'm giving you this passage for this season. And it's not even you need to read it. Throughout the day, I was like, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I nicked it from Gideon. I literally claimed it for myself. And I said, if it was good enough for Gideon, it's good enough for me. I'm not sure theologically how we go on that. But I'm like, I am a mighty warrior. But genuinely, I had to choose to stand in that identity because the Lord had given me that. And that was enough that every day I could get up and just be like, the Lord's with you, mighty warrior. That was the strengthening process, that there was an identity that had been put on me because I had battles to fight. I had people to stand up for. I had faith to be placed into the gaps. I needed the identity to stand against the lies. You can't do this. You don't know what you're doing. You just need an easy life. In fact, James, you deserve an easy life. I had to stand on God's identity rather than my own human insecurity. Most of the things that we are asked to do, we feel deeply unqualified for. He qualifies us through his call rather than our ability. It's the call that qualifies us. He qualifies us through his call rather than our, our ability. Now, the backdrop for Gideon, just to come into this, because sometimes we read the story of Gideon and it's quite a quaint story. I'm like, I remember this from Sunday school. And we don't actually realize the enormity of what Gideon's being asked to do in this moment. Gideon, you've got to step out and live in a new nature. So, of course, Gideon is like, do you know what, Lord? If I'm honest, I need a little bit more clarification on this. Hence the story of the fleeces. And we often look at Gideon a bit like, yeah, Gideon was a bit stupid. He needed extra clarification. What? Gideon had to lead an army against the Midianites because God had said so, not because he was any good. I mean, how, how terrifying is that? Genuinely, stop back, think about that. I'm going to cause you to go into battle to lead an army and you're completely unqualified and you've got no position or authority either. So Gideon was like, Lord, I actually really do need a little bit of extra clarification on this. I often ask people, what do you need to lead through this next season? And the answer is generally, in my experience, a word from the Lord. Do you know what I mean? It's like whatever season that you're in, it's like, Lord, what do you want to stand me to stand on? And for me, during the 20 years that I've been in pastoral ministry, there has pretty much always be a, been a word that I'm standing on. It's generally a scripture, but it could just be a picture. It is something that the Lord has given me to strengthen my frame and my soul for that season. Without that, I am utterly useless because that's the strengthening of the Lord. And therefore, sometimes if you're sitting here and you're like, I don't actually have that, my prayer for would be that you're like, actually, I need the Lord's identity over me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I need to stand in the, in the identity that the Lord's got given me, not in my human insecurity. So that's the first one. It's the test of identity, and it continues throughout our whole life. It's always there, the test of identity. The second one is this. It's about provision. It's not about you, it's all about him. Let's turn to the beginning of Judges 7. Just flip over into Judges 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. 
That's a pretty massive moment, isn't it? Verse four, still too many men. Verse seven, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Basically, God's whole point in this is, I don't want you to boast in anything that you have been able to do, Gideon, and therefore I'm going to strip everything away from you that you cannot literally look at yourself and say, I did this. So God shrinks Gideon's army by 99% from 32,000 to 300. Now, God has taken Gideon on a pretty extreme journey so far of leadership. He's gone from God, I'm annoyed with you. You have deserted us and I'm hiding in a wine press. To Gideon, do you know what? Don't be annoyed. I'm sending you. My mighty warrior, and by the way, I'm going to go with you. God, can you actually give me a sign to confirm this? And would you do it again? You know, the Lord is beautifully gracious to him. And then the Lord assembles 32,000 men. Gideon looks back and thinks, okay, well, at least I've got some men with me. This is probably, what's the one thing that you probably would want going into war? Men, men or women or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like an army. And so God's like, no, Gideon, I'm still teaching you. I'm literally, can you imagine that moment as he's going through these different things and people are lapping the water and suddenly he's down to 300 men? Can you imagine what that felt like? Guys, thanks so, so much for coming. It's really great of you to come out and put your armor on, but I don't actually need you. I only need 300 the way that you drink isn't actually going to work for us. No, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's like, you know, that would be a brilliant way of sorting things out. It's like you're, not, you're just not the kind of drinkers we're looking for around here. This is something else I've learned from the Lord. He really isn't bothered about you looking good. Disappointing, isn't it? That's why I dress down every time I get on stage. Purposeful, purposeful. I, I mean, in Cardiff, I actually wear suits. Um, I mean, you didn't know that about me, did you? Do you know what I mean? I actually get dressed up to preach. I've got a white one as well. But, um, <laughs> but the Lord will provide for what he orders, won't he? He will provide for what he orders. And I just want to just make this point. The test of provision in leadership never flipping ends. <laughs> so... For the planter, let's go for the planter. You're moving to a new location. Like I just bumped into, um, oh, I've completely forgotten your name. That person. I bumped into some planters um, earlier. And um, literally, for the planter moving, it's the Jameses. Sorry, it's come back to me. There you go, the Jameses. For the planter moving to a new location, they've literally just moved to Stoke-on-Trent um, two weeks ago. That moment of, okay, God, you're going to have to provide a house. You're going to have to provide a school. In fact, we've absolutely got no money. So you're going to have to provide financial. Oh, Lord, you're going to have to provide for our children if you've got them, friends and schools. Will you provide people? We haven't got any people to build with. Will you provide those? Will you provide all of those? As the community grows, suddenly it's like, do you know what, Lord? I need you to provide a salary. Could you provide some facilities, maybe some buildings? Will you provide some leaders? And if preferably, could they be competent leaders? And as you multiply out, this is the stupidity of this whole process. Will you provide people to cover the people who are leaving to plant? What was I thinking? Will you provide room in our hearts to keep raising and releasing, raising and releasing, raising and releasing? 
Because there is a danger that we just reach the point where we're like, da, 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 I've grown the thing. Isn't this brilliant? We are stable. Let us settle. That is in the hearts of most people, isn't it? It's like, at last we filled the rotors. Hallelujah. We have got a full rotor. What do you mean the Lord is speaking to somebody about church planting? What, they're going to wipe out half of the team? No flipping weight. How many givers is that that they're going to take with them? Seven. Two doctors? No. <laughs> that is literally going to scupper us. Actually, stuff multiplication. Stupid idea. I'm out. I'm out. Like, I, I know I said that it was a good idea. It's just stupid. My point is, we never, ever stop the provision journey. It's not like we reached the point. I've just been through another one <laughs> thinking that I got through that. You know, I had this moment um, in January where suddenly the building that we've been trying to buy for seven years came available. And it's like, you can buy it. I was like, yes. Oh, no, I've got no money. Like, literally, I was like, Jen turned to me and she was like, how excited are you? And I was like, white-faced. I was like, I've got to find 270,000 pounds. I'm having a brown pants moment. Like, that's what I call it. It's just that moment where you're like, I really, really love the idea of having a building. I really like that concept. I really don't like asking a church for money that's just come out of a pandemic. Are people even with us? I don't know. I've got to ask for a whole load of money. So yes, having to go through, on the one hand, deeply elated, we might be able to buy a building, but what if we fail? Like, who's going to give us any money? Do you know what I mean? It's just this, this journey. And um, we're going back up the mountain again. We continually have the journey of provision that we are going on throughout. And it's Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. I love, I love in this story that God says, Gideon, the reason that I'm stripping down your army is because I want to show you my glory. I want to show you my power. But when you're in that, you really don't want God's power. You just want the solution. You just want it to be okay. Because that's the human nature. And unless you lot are far more mature than me, which maybe you are. But, but that journey of provision is like a muscle that the Lord just keeps growing in us. It keeps growing in it and it keeps going on. And it's like, oh, wow. But it is also beautiful because it's one of the things that people love is when you can go, and the Lord provided this. When you start telling the stories, you're doing your newcomers' meals or you're in these places, can I just tell you how the Lord has provided for this community? He moved here, he did this, he moved here, he's done this. You know, when I was a, you know, just coming back to that moment when I needed 270,000 pounds and I had a moment and I rang a few people in the church and was like, do you want to lend us some money? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, got any spare cash? Do you know what I mean? Just started ringing around. Within a week, I'd been, well, maybe a little bit longer, a couple of weeks, I'd been given 87,000 pounds. People were like, do you know what? I've got 20 grand that I've just got I can give you. I've never had that in my life before. We are the kind of church that gets gifts of 20 pounds. No, but you know what I mean? You're like, oh, there's a big gift coming. It's 20 quid. Great. You know, now that does something. But somebody turning around and being like, I'm giving you 20 grand. I mean, one 20 grand I would have been really happy with. And then somebody's like, oh, yeah, I've spoken to somebody who's not in the church, and they'd love to give 20 grand as well. I was like, wow, this is really beginning to roll. You know, so within two weeks, I had 87,000 pounds, and I was like, that's just never happened. That is the Lord that is no other. And that's because the Lord, yeah, it's amazing. But my point is, 
it's never been released because I've never needed it before. Do you, do you know what I mean? It was almost like the stepping, the Lord released it as we stepped in. It was like, we're going for this thing. Lord, you've got to, you've just got to act. And it's only that the Lord responds to the faith step that we take as we do that. So the journey of provision, the test of provision is something that will continually be there and that we've just got to keep. We know it's there and we keep living with that and we keep pushing. <laughs> test three, worship. We, we worship in response to his kindness. Let's pick it up. Judges 7, 8 to 15. I love Gideon's dream here. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. That's a good moment. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Gideon is afraid and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. I love that Gideon worships before he goes into battle. That's his response. In response to overhearing the dream, his response, his, he worships in response to the Lord's kindness. It's this moment where it's like, oh, God, you have been so kind to me. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken. And in that moment, courage floods into his heart and to his soul. There's a courage outworking in this moment because of worship. He's worshiping, I love, for what he is about to receive. It's like grace, isn't it? You know, when we sit down and we, for what we're about to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful. I am worshiping for what you are about to do in advance. Often we think about worshiping once God's done the thing. It's like, what about we worship before he's done the thing? It's really beautiful. Worship is our shield. Worship is our powerful weapon. Worship is exalting God to his rightful place. Worship is surrender to the plans and purposes of God. Worship says, all I can do is be obedient to your leading and your purposes. Worship says, if your presence does not go with us, we do not want to go up out of here. I am not going to leave until you are with us. Worship gives us God's perspective. In worship, we become aware of all the idols, don't we? It's like, oh, man, that has become an idol. The Lord just reveals it. He just begins to break it off. It's like, yeah, do you know what? Mike gave a word about the house the other day, didn't he? It's that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, become the idol. My family's become the idol. Like, whatever it is. But in the posture of worship, we bring our brokenness, our stuff, our doubts, our fears, and we let him fill us. We put him back on the throne and we give him his rightful place. It's a courage filler worship. I know that in times of deep stress, what is my response? I've got to worship. I just have to have worship music on in the house. I have to have it all around me. <laughs> I'm just like, that's, that kind of tells me where my soul is. I'm like, I just need worship. I need more worship. And what happens in worship is I believe that there's a divine exchange. He takes our rags, our brokenness, our weakness, and he's like, I'm going to use it for your glory. For his glory, sorry. Just coming into land. 
I think there's, just in finishing the thought, I think there is this cyclical thing between worship and identity, though. Worship goes back into identity. It almost becomes a cyclical re reinforcement of our identity. So how amazing is it that the moment when we pour ourselves out in worship to the Lord in response to his goodness, in his kindness is so vast that he begins to sing over us and he speaks blessing and calling and identity over us. As we pour out our adoration in worship, he fills us up back up with faith. Can you see that? Identity and worship are linked. I give you the praise and honor. In that place, he begins to sing over us and we receive our identity. It's like this beautiful thing, but it comes out of a heart of, I just got to surrender myself before you, Lord. If you don't continue to worship, you can't get to the place of reinforcing the call. So I think the two go hand in hand. So in conclusion, I love the analogy of faith being like a spiral staircase where you can only see the next step. That's what it feels like. That's what it's always felt like for me. You can't see. You want to see to the top of the stairs. It's like, Lord, what's it look like at the top? And he's like, do you know what? I'm going to be really kind. I'll give you the next step. And you're like, oh, that's what it feels like. We see this reinforced through the story of Gideon. Him getting to the place where the 300 men, he takes on an army with some trumpets and some candles. 300 men. Goes against the army. You know the rest of the story. For the Lord and for Gideon, they cry these nutters. Literally nutters going, you are going to have to move. Otherwise, we are literally dead. Routes the army. It's the battle. It's the battle of the kingdoms. It's the kingdom confrontation that we are in between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. And that's the spiritual battle. And we have been called with the spirit of leadership to stand into that, but then also to keep calling the spirit of leadership out in others. That's what we get to do. That's the beauty of the journey. And um, so why don't you stand and we'd love to minister.